so grateful to God to be back once again to the Cyber Sanctuary. Grateful for this awesome privilege of prognostication, preaching, teaching, telling folk about the good news. Thankful that the Lord allows us to stand behind this disc. Thankful that he lets us come in to worship. You don't have to come into this sanctuary to worship. You can worship exactly where you are. My prayer is that you've already been engaged in worship this morning. I know we've lit a fire in this room. I hope you've lit a fire in your room, wherever you are. I'm so thankful today to be reminded by our musicians that he knows my name. That's important, because sometimes people call me out my name, and they act like they don't remember my name. But he knows my name. What do you say? Oh, how he walks with me. Yeah. Oh, how he talks with me. Yeah, and how he tells me that I'm his own. My Lord. Andre, you belong to me. Anybody like me ever need him to remind you that you belong to him? Yeah. Thank you, Lord. I heard Anthony's remarks a short time ago, Deacon Sparks' remarks. If you're doing anything for the United States right now, you ought to be praying. You ought to act like we've been here before. Don't gloat in victory if you voted for Joe Biden. Pray for Joe. Pray for Kamala. Pray for Donald Trump. And pray for the folk who are around Donald Trump. Somebody in his circle can get to him and convince him to put country before self and acknowledge that the will of the people has been given and he needs to move on. I don't think you understand if you're not a student of politics and history, 
Situations like this can quickly spin out of control. You'll have armed conflict on the streets, all in support of someone who simply cannot accept reality. So be prayerful for him. Be prayerful for our country. Y'all act like because Joe Biden and Kamala won that automatically everything's all right. Yeah, I'm so thankful when I see that 75 million people supported Joe and Kamala. But I'm so prayerful when I see that 70 million people supported the other side. 70 million people is a lot of folk. That's 70 million people who did not agree with what you agreed with. 70 million neighbors in your grocery store, in your school, in your neighborhood. That's 70 million people. 70 million people in your family, that's right. Didn't agree with what you said, and those people aren't just gonna stop talking. No, they're trying to figure out what they can do in 2024 to turn the ship, just like we started thinking about what we could do in 2016 to turn the ship. The cycle doesn't stop. Somebody in the middle has got to stop and say, Kumbaya, Lord. Kumbaya. Somebody's got to start praying more and asking the Lord to bring peace and unity to our community. You don't want to hear it. We want to clap and celebrate and anticipate what's going to happen on January 20th. Joe needs every man on his protection detail. And Kamala does too. Because these are dangerous times. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced that the Lord is trying to tell us something through all this. Are we listening? Are we listening? Why is it that we have this stuff going on in the midst of a pandemic? It's not the first time in our country. <clears throat> We've had to deal with issues. Let's not forget the lessons of the past. If you don't remember, we had, a, we had a, uh, an election during the middle of a civil war. In some respects, we're in a civil war right now. People are armed on the streets, have chosen sides. Pray for us that we have a leader who can help lead us through this conflict. The Lord put on our hearts to have a month devoted to stewardship, and I'm so glad today that we're able to come and to continuing that series, but before I do, I want to give you some good news. I've been contacted by family or one of our members, uh, Sergeant Walter and Bernicia Means. You see them on our announcements weekly. Walter is stationed uh, in the United States Army. Army. He and his wife, Bernicia, had the biggest baby I've seen in a long time. Seven pounds, 11 ounces, 22 and a half inches. That's a baby, that's a man. Matthew Elijah Means was born on November 7, 2020. In the midst of the bad, God gives us good. In the midst of all the news about people leaving, God sends us a baby. And we thank God for his continuing to nurture us and to grow them and bless Blessing Walter and Bernicia with this new bundle of joy, big bundle of joy.
huge bundle of joy. We thank God for him being here right now and continue to pray for them and Granddaddy Willie, the whole family. They've had a lot of loss this year. They could do with some getting. Yeah, in case you don't know their perspective, they've lost some warriors in their family this year. And so getting one, getting this baby, I'm sure is bound to bring a smile to their face. So God bless, bless them all. Our message today is a continuation of our stewardship series, and work with me on this one as I walk through it. It's, a, it's one that's not meant to tickle your fancy, but teaching rarely does. Teaching usually takes you to a place you were unaware of until you can keep on going to high heights, and that's what this message is, I hope. It's an awareness message, and it comes from one of our old prophets, Haggai. Haggai, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. If you will, allow me to read it. In the second year of Darius, Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet, unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, who was the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, underline this now, the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Verse 4, is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie in waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider, consider your ways. Ye have sung much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warmth. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put them in a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider, consider your ways. When I go to work every day, I'm, I'm reminded of the historical places that I I'm able to be a part of considering the history of the civil rights movement in our country. I'm reminded of two blocks over from where I work is the 16th Street Baptist Church. All that transpired there and continues to go on there. I'm reminded when I'm at work of the civil rights leaders who have tried and been a part of the streets here in Birmingham, and one place in particular is the Birmingham jail. Now, I don't work in the same jail facility that Dr. King was in on April 16, 1963. Not in that same physical place, but symbolically, every day I work with the Birmingham jail. 
One of the finest pieces of prose that's ever been penned was penned by a man sitting in the Birmingham jail. Dr. King sat there, having been arrested. And I went back this week and I was reading his letter from the Birmingham jail. Something came out of that letter to me that I had not paid much attention to before, and it spoke to me in terms of this message today. He identified a disease in his letter that I believe can quickly overpower us as believers and can undermine the good work that's done in the church. And I thought it a great purpose to come today and to prepare us for the eventuality of coming out of this COVID stance we're in. Sooner, my prayer is, rather than later, we'll shake off COVID and we'll come back to something that resembles what we used to have. We won't go back to what we had. No, no. No, no, no. Those days are over. No, no. Things have changed. You got to wrap your mind around the fact that the gene is out of the bottle when it comes to certain things we used to do. People have been, for a long time, pushing back on the notion that you can, you got to come into a sanctuary in order to worship. Those days are, are gone now because God allowed it to happen to show us that you don't have to walk in four walls in order to get the word of God delivered to you. What we're missing is not worship. What we're missing is fellowship. We're struggling. We're in need of fellowship. But in the midst of us desiring fellowship, much of the work of the church is going, in my opinion, undone in the manner in which we have been accustomed to doing it. The statisticians tell us that since the beginning of the COVID pandemic, one-third of the people who regularly attended church have stopped going anywhere at all. One-third have stopped being a part of any part of the church. Now, you think about that. That's affecting everyone across the board. One-third of the people. No, no, I'm not saying they're at home watching on the feed like this we have right now on Cyber Church. They're not doing that. They're not doing anything. Now, see, the truth of the matter is COVID is providing a cover for some folk. Yeah, some folk were barely making it in terms of fellowship anyway, in terms of coming to worship. And they might hit in every now and then, but now they don't even have to do that anymore because nobody knows. Nobody's paying attention. And since we haven't seen anybody for real in the last, I don't know, last 30-something Sundays, Nobody knows if you're watching it at home anyway. And some of them have stopped. Can I tell you that that is not good for the church? And you can tell it's not good for our community. You know why? Because we need the church. One of the things that we're struggling from right now is not having the church. Not having the church do her work. Not having the church in folks' lives not having the church provide a foundation for people. We've always had that in our community. And when we don't have that, we have, when we don't have that order in our lives, in my opinion, we have chaos. Dr. King faced a similar situation. 
when he was sitting in the jail, he had to respond to the allegations of various clergy here in Birmingham who called him an outside agitator. They referred to him as an extremist. He had to first lay down a foundation in his letter of why he came to Birmingham in the first place, explaining that it was French Shuttlesworth and the whole movement that invited him to Birmingham, explaining to the folk that I didn't just show up unannounced. I came here because I was invited here. And the reason I was invited here is because there are problems here. And anybody who doesn't think there are problems in Birmingham hadn't been paying attention to Birmingham. Anybody who doesn't know that the center of civil unrest in this country is Birmingham, Alabama, with more unsolved murders of black folk, more unsolved bombings of black churches than anywhere in the country. He said, if you other members of the clergy don't see that, then there's a bigger problem here. And so you chastise me for coming to Birmingham, but you do not chastise me for the purpose for which I came. You don't look at that. And then he started talking about why the situation was as it was in Birmingham. He said, I'm standing between two opposing forces. I came to tell you right now, there's similarities in the church today. Two opposing forces. He said, the first opposing force I have is the fact that there's a group of people who have gotten to a place in our country after long years of oppression, I'll read it, who are so drained of self-respect and a sense of somebodyness that they have adjusted to segregation. And in part of a few middle-class black folk who, because they've attained some level of academic growth or economic security, and because in some ways, he said they profit by segregation. He said they've become insensitive to the problem of the masses. I hope somebody hears me in here. That there's a whole caste in our community that doesn't care about the suffering of the people who are around us in our community because in their opinion, they're untouched by it. They live in other neighborhoods that are not affected by the suffering. The other force that he was standing between, and so that's one group, the other force is one of bitterness and hatred. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And it comes perilously close, he said, to advocating violence. Remember now, he was trying to preach a nonviolent end to the situation. It's expressed in the, in, the, in, the, in the various black nationalist groups that are springing up all over the nation. In our country, we got folk who say that that's Black Lives Matter. They're springing up and are doing harm in our community. You know and I know that that's not the truth. Well, the truth of the matter is there are those who would burn down a city. There are those who would burn down a community. There are those who would burn down the very businesses that need to stay up to feed our community. Those are the two places that King said he finds himself standing in the middle of. And he has to take this letter and explain it to them. There's one group that would burn it all down. And then there's another group that seemingly is unconcerned. To me, 
It's those unconcerned folks that we're dealing with today, and that's who I'm trying to talk to. So for a little while, just today, just for a few more minutes, I want to talk to you about do-nothingism. Do-nothingism. It's a phrase that Dr. King coined during his speech. He said, I've tried to stand between these two forces, saying that we need emulate neither the do-nothingism of the complacent nor the hatred and despair of the black nationalists. Do-nothingism. Why is that important? Because when we get to a place of do-nothing, even though we have resources available, we don't care. We, we, we don't care. We won't use what God has blessed us with. I'm not expecting amens this morning. Just listen. Don't turn it off on me. We're not in a place where we can reach a do-nothing state of mind. We got too many people who are still suffering in our community. In fact, we've never reached a point in our history where people stop suffering. Well, we've had a few people to get over the hump. We've had a few people to isolate themselves, but we've never in our historical trajectory reached a point where everybody got over. Everybody hadn't been able to say how I got over. A lot of people don't even know what it means to get over, and a lot of folk can't even imagine that they will get over, and so we've not reached a point in our community where we can do nothing. And yet that's exactly what I find that we do. And guess what? COVID has provided a cover for us in the church to do nothing. For some reason, we've decided that we're in this stance, that we don't have to still worry about homeless folk. We don't still have to worry about hungry folk. We don't still have to act and help hurting folk. No, all we have to do is take care of ourselves. And I came to tell you, that's what Haggai was talking about. Can I tell you how it connects? Haggai is writing a letter to the folk who have been released from captivity after 70 years. Just as predicted, the end of those 70 years of captivity, the, 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 the very benevolent leader allowed them to go back to their home, go back home and rebuild the community that had been torn asunder, go back and rebuild their lives, rebuild their religious practices. He had allowed them to go back and try to reclaim a normal life. And that had happened 16 years, hear me, 16 years before Haggai sits down and pens this prophecy, this letter to them. 16 years before he feels like he has to sit down and chastise them. They've been free for 16 years. And in those 16 years, they've been taking care of everything but the Lord's work. They've been free to go home. Free to go live, free to grow, free to become better than they'd been, certainly in captivity. But in 16 years, they had not seen fit to take care of the Lord's business. 16 years. Somebody ought to say, ooh, that ain't right. Because you know it ain't right. That when you come and you take all the resources that God has blessed you with, and instead of focusing on the things of the Lord, you do nothing. Haggai tells his countrymen, there's something gone wrong in your relationship with God. 
And I'm going to reveal it to you through the insight that God has given me. And that's when he tells them those few words, consider your ways. Can I make it real? He said, think about what you've been doing. You haven't been taking care of the primary thing. And the instructions aren't very complicated. The admonition to love your brother and take care of your family is not very difficult. The direction to go home and rebuild your lives means that you go back and start with the very foundation that you've always depended on, which means that then Moses tell them to remember the Lord so that when you come into those houses you didn't build, when you're eating off those vineyards you didn't plant, when you're drinking from those wells you didn't dig, you might have the notion that you did it yourself. But you need to remember the Lord and they've come back, back to those vineyards and those wells and those houses and they're doing well and making them better and they're going to Home Depot and to Lowe's and they're getting all the material they can to build up their own houses and nobody's paying attention to the house of the Lord. Nobody's doing the things that need to be done from the house of the Lord. And so he asked some questions. And those are the questions we ask today. Simply the first one is, what are your priorities? What, what are your priorities? So, so, so watch me now. Haggai was having a conversation with the congregation about building the physical church. Build the physical church. I didn't come today to tell you that we need to build the physical church, although there may be some things we need to do. I came to tell you there's a spiritual church that has to be built in our community. And the fact that we're struggling so much in our community, the fact that we got folk on extreme ends of the conversation means that you and I haven't been doing a good job building the spiritual community around here. The fact that we got some folk who feel that God has blessed them so much and thank God he's protecting me and I'm okay and everybody in my household is okay. That's one side, but we got the other side that's violently opposed to a church that talks about God but don't show them God. We got the other side that will not stand up and support a church that has never done anything to them. Church ain't never come walking down my street. These folks are struggling. And we keep talking about Jesus today. And they keep asking, who is Jesus? And the reason is because Jesus has never walked to help them, never supported them in those times. And what greater time than during a pandemic? What greater time than when everybody's suffering, when they can't get out for the church to show up and show out, as we say. Do the things that we're supposed to be doing, not so I can get you to come to my building and be a part of this physical congregation, but because I know you need to know the Lord. You need to know who he is and how he can help you. And so I asked these questions, the same one Haggai asked, what are your priorities? The people said, verse two, that the time has not come the time that the Lord's house should be built. People say that it's not time yet. Now they knew what they should have done. 
But that attitude reminds one of what St. Augustine wrote. He's quoted as saying before he became a Christian, God helped me to do good, but not yet. But not yet. The time has come. But they've been back home for 16 years. The time has not come, they said. Not come. But they've been back for 16 years. If the time hadn't come in 16 years, when is the time going to come? How can you reasonably make that argument? We must build the temple. There are physical facilities sitting open, I mean sitting without folk, all over our community. And yet the temple still needs to be built. Yeah, the temple, our congregation, still needs to grow. We still need to be telling folk how good God is. We still need to be talking to folk. We still need to be using all these mediums we have, not just to stay in touch with one another, but for outreach, for inreach. We need to be growing people from where we are. They're opening up everything around here these days, rushing to get back to recreation. Rushing to get back to recreation. Are we rushing to get to a place to grow the church? So they're thinking was like this, that the crops may suffer and they might be the losers if they came in from the field. So in other words, if I take too much time away from my work, if I take too much time away from my house to work on the Lord's house, then I'm going to come up short some kind of way. Unwittingly, they had reached a state of do-nothingism. It was disguised as indifference. Yeah, the Lord's spirit, we told folk for years, dwells in this place, and it's true. When we are constituted here, the Lord's spirit is here with us. But if we go down the street to the library and we constitute at the library, guess what, y'all? The Lord's spirit is there with us, too. And if we go across the street to the gas station and we have a meeting in the parking lot of the gas station, guess what? The Lord's spirit is there abiding with us as well. Wherever we go, the Lord's spirit is able to go with us. And so there are some places that we haven't been going, some people we haven't been talking to who need the Lord's provisions who need the love of the church. And we got to make sure we go and help them. But the question always comes back to what is our priority? Most of the time, we can't get to those priorities fast enough because we've got selfish excuses. You, you know, selfish. Something pertaining to us. Something that's growing us, not outwardly. But I wonder if that attitude is still evidence today. I believe it is. It's okay, we got some students who are in school who can say that they got to study first. You know, I got to make sure I take care of my studies. And, and so the Lord's service can wait until after I finish my studies. We, we hear that. We said that. And then there's some businessmen who might argue that the stress and strain of business life in this context mean that I can't afford a whole lot of time and energy to the Lord's work. And so just like those folk who are coming back from exile and been there for 16 years, we get to a place of do-nothingism, and it, it really comes down to us saying simply, if I can make it plain for you, we say, I'm going to do that, but not yet. I'm going to get around to that, but I'm not going to do it just yet. Not yet. Yeah, we're going to do our share, but just, just not yet. 
One day I'm going to detach myself from my commitments and I'm going to start fulfilling all the responsibilities I got to the Lord. Just, just not yet. The time hadn't come yet. I'm going to start coming to Bible study. But, but not yet. Some people still, I've said this before, some people still haven't come to Bible study. Some people have no excuse. You at home all day long, been at home around the clock, and yet you won't come to Bible study, either physically in this building or online. Won't tune in. Been here for 16, almost 17 years. Some people can't say they've ever been in Bible study in 16 plus years with me. How do you expect to grow? I, I, I find it comforting that you say you're in Bible study with somebody else. You're learning from somebody else. That, that's a good thing, but it sure wouldn't make your mama feel good if you eat dinner at somebody else's house every night. Mama want to know why you never come home and eat off her table. Mama wants to know. Not only that, so much extrinsic stuff other than studying the Bible, goes on around a Bible study setting. So much news is put out. So much fellowship occurs. When you miss that environment, then you miss the fellowship of the church completely. And you say, not yet. You say, I'm going to get in the choir, but not yet. I'm going to start tithing. Just, just not yet. And so you're not tithing. Because you're not tithing, you're not contributing at all, not yet. Complacency. Or oh, they got enough folk over there giving. Everything look all right every time I come around. Somebody must be doing something. Has nothing to do with your personal obligation to support and participate. I'm going to start working, but I'm going to wait till they get a new pastor. That one always trips me out there. Just not yet. I'm going to start working, but the pastor ain't been here too long. Yeah, I've been here as long as they have been back from exile. And so that excuse of not yet doesn't make me smile. Selfish excuses prevent you from doing it. Not only selfish excuses, but you need to do some self-examination. Yeah, self-examination is a very valuable tool. I've heard some people call it a faith audit. You know, something that you can identify in yourself, how you participate in the body of Christ. See if you're using your time wisely. See if you can have a good report. We know about considering our time and how much it's worth. I think I've gone through this exercise before. See if you are on a do-nothing ship. Do-nothing-ism can grip you and you not even know you're involved in it. But if you just do a faith audit, if you just do a self-examination, you can identify how you're spending your time. It's been skewed a little bit in these last few months. You know, we still only have 24 hours a day. How do you use yours? Every one of us is blessed by the Lord. He blesses us. If you don't know why you need to thank him, by the time you get up in the morning, he's already renewed your 24 hours and you started working on it already. You already been blessed to stay asleep, some folk, for six of those hours anyway. If you went to sleep before midnight and you get up at six, you got six in already. The Lord has been blessing you. You still getting seven days a week if the Lord blesses you. That's 168 hours a week. 
You get 52 weeks in a year, that means you, like me, have been blessed with 8,736 hours a year. That might not mean anything to you, but it does mean something to somebody who's lost somebody they love. Somebody they've been thinking about. I got a great friend who I've grown up with. I knew 40 some years and I got up this morning thinking that it's been a year since he passed away. A year since he passed away. So that means I've gotten another 8,700 and some odd hours that he didn't get. And I ought to have enough sense in my mind and my to say thank you, Lord, for blessing me for this period of time. Question is, what have I done with it? What have I done with those 8,700 hours to benefit not just Andre? Well, I've gone to work. I was going to work up until March about 40 hours a week, which means that of my 8,000 hours, I was pulling 22,080 20, of them out just for work, thereabout. But that's gotten turned upside down since this COVID thing. Oh, oh yeah, that whole work week thing has changed a whole lot. Not actually physically going in a place some of these days. No, 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 no. This is going to get real interesting because I've got 40 hours a week for work. I've had eight hours a week for church. Between work and church, I mean between work and sleep, that was 4,900 hours that I had available to me. 4,900 hours out of the 8,736 hours in a year. But watch this now. Since COVID hit, some of us have been cheating because we used to be able to deduct some time for church that we don't have to deduct no more. We used to have more time. I think we've gotten back a hundred and some odd hours for the time we used to come to church. What are you doing for that right now? What are you doing with that time that you used to spend in fellowship with one another? Have you given that back to the Lord or did you reclaim that for yourself? What are you doing with that hundred hours that's been reclaimed? And I was generous on the church time. I, I said three and a half hours, even though if I kept you here at 45th Street for three and a half hours, some folk would get up and walk out in the middle of the sermon. Three and a half hours. I was really doing from Sunday school to the time we got out. Imagining in a perfect Sunday that folk were here for Bible study in the morning. But even in addition to that, I gave you at least another hour for Bible study through the week. That's another hour. And just on the off chance that you're involved in a ministry, we gave you another hour for, say, choir rehearsal or something like that. Yeah. So that was five and a half hours a week that the average attendee participated in. Consider your ways. And some of us have lost at least a couple of those hours. I would say even more generous than that. I, I would suggest, I would suggest that it's more generous than that. What are you doing with it is my point. You've reclaimed all this time. Did you take that time that God had blessed you with and give it back to somebody else to help them? What are your priorities with that time? Is it just more time for Netflix? More time for Prime? More time for sleeping? More time for whatever? What are you doing? Haggai told the folk, consider your ways. Consider your ways. What are you doing with all this time that God has blessed you with? People always had 
feeble excuses. I'm not, I'm not pointing the finger. I'm just asking you to consider, ponder, meditate, pray about. What are you doing with that time that's beneficial to one another? Please don't tell me you found yourself sleeping on the bed of do-nothingism because I need you to get up off that bed because people are in trouble. You want our community to be better? We need folk out there helping people so they can be better. And who are the people that are expected to go out there and, and help? I hear in so many meetings I go to with officials from around the city, I have to sit there and cringe too many times when we start talking about the homeless situation in our community. It never fails to come up in the community in, the, in those meetings, this question, Reggie, Where's the church in helping with these issues? Where is the African-American church? Because if the African-American church was on its mission, homelessness would hardly be an issue in our community. Poverty would be on the run. We would have no problem with kids eating every day if we were on our business. Why? Because God has allowed enough resources to flow into our community, to flow into our hands, to flow into our homes, and yet you got kids living next door who are not eating every day. Consider. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. In fact, I asked this question last. He said, why are you poor? Why are you so poor? And his words are penetrating. Penetrating because he said, you planted a whole lot, but you've harvested a little. You eat, but you don't ever have enough. You drink, but you never get your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. Can I make this plain to you? How many of you go through the exercise every evening of what we're going to eat today? I'm tired of going to this restaurant. And we've been here too much. I don't want to eat that right now because if I go too often, I'm going to lose the taste for it. So we got to go somewhere else. That's what it says. It says you eat, but never have enough. Yeah. You drink, but you never have your feel. It's not satisfying to you. Put on clothes, but they're not warm enough. Amazon hasn't lost a step. You don't have to walk in belt or Macy's or any store to shop anymore. You can sit in your recliner and order a whole new wardrobe. And do you order anything for anybody else outside your house? Any extra coats for them kids across the street? Consider your wage. And then he says you earn wages, but you put them in a bag that's got holes in it. Just can't save. I paid my car off and I still can't see where the money goes. Bag with holes in it. Never see the benefit of it. What is it? Why is it? What is it that we're struggling with? Jim Elliott wrote these words. No one ever gains by trying to cheat God. He makes a fool's bargain, bartering a real good for a perishable trifle and lasting at last even what he is, and losing at last, I'm sorry, even what he's gained. You can't cheat God. You know, that ain't even, you don't have to go to college to understand that. The old folk used to sing that song all the time, Miss Bate. They used to say, you can't beat God given no matter how you try. 
The more you give, watch this, the more he gives to you. Just keep on living because it's really true that you can't, you can't beat God giving. The songwriter didn't say the more you keep, the more he gives to you. They said the more you give, the more he gives to you. The formula is right there. Giving helps you keep on become a conduit for giving. And so the, the Jews had sown plentifully. 16 years out of captivity had been good. And yet they didn't see any benefit. Watch this and I'm out here. John Gavin says this, that God punishes men in two ways. Two ways. The first way he punishes men is by withdrawing the blessing that he's allowed you to have. He'll take it from you. We know that's a problem. We can see that immediately. But there's a second way, and I dare say some of us are struggling with this. First way he, he the Lord punishes men is by withdrawing the blessing, Jeremiah. The second way, the second way he punishes us is by preventing the things provided from giving us satisfaction. In other words, you get it, but you get no satisfaction from it. And so it's almost a punishment to have it. It's like, I've been wanting this steak, but just before I got this steak, I got a cold, and I can't taste it. I got it, but it's not giving me any satisfaction. That's how the Lord can deal with us. The last thing any believer ought to want to do is lose their joy. But it can happen if we find ourselves hoarding, not helping, hating, not praying for, not strengthening our community, but just strengthening our own little nest. Haggai's message urges God's flock to give careful thought to your ways. And I came to double down on that today and say there's a reason why folk are mad in the streets is because the folk who have have been hoarding and not helping. They've been not reaching out. They've been not coming to my house. They act like I'm a second-class citizen when all they've done is gotten a step ahead and look back and act like they don't know me no more. You know I'm telling the truth. It ain't just other folk. We do it to people in our family. Act like they can't come to the house because they've never had anything. You ought to hear me now. That we treat folk wrong. No, they can't come up in here. The Lord has blessed you to get one step ahead. And you need to make sure you help somebody else get a step ahead too. Do nothingism is not an option. We need to be making mighty plans. So that the day we can burst out of this setting we find ourselves in, the day COVID hood is out from over this community, we can come out victorious and grab all the folk, physically and cyber. We can grab them all and bring them unto, under the umbrella of the church. That's our responsibility. Are we making plans to support folk? Are we doing it right now? That's part of our stewardship of what God has given us. Making sure we use it not just for ourselves. And so the question is, when will you do something? And the time is now. We'll do it right now.
He told them, go and rebuild. Go rebuild God's house. And that's what I'm saying today. We got to rebuild God's house in the new way, in the physical cyber way that it's got to be, in the hybrid way it's got to be. We can expect to have a full congregation in person and online at the same time. There's no need for somebody who lives out of state not to be able to say, I belong to 45th Street. That's our job to be able to give them the opportunity to be a part of a loving congregation they should find that we are big enough to be the friendliest church from the parking lot to the pulpit no matter where they are not just if you can make it to our parking lot Haggai tells all of them and guess what T I love this it's not in the part that I read, but if you jump down to verse 12 in chapter 1 of Haggai, the Bible says that the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet. And the church grew abundantly because they listened to the prophet and they turned around and they put first things first. They put God's house first. They took care of rebuilding God's house. And when you take care of God's situation, when you make sure you put him first, he'll also take care of you. Watch this now. Matthew said it best. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. He gave us his best. He expects us all the time to give our best. Do you understand what that means? That means you have to understand how to sacrifice. Not grab it all for yourself. Give somebody else something so that they can do better in life. But what they need more importantly is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ died for them. And that Jesus Christ lives for them. And that Jesus Christ will carry them all the way to glory. I hope you hear me today. If you've never accepted him as your personal Lord and Savior, right now is the time. Here is the opportunity for you to accept his sacrificial death. He loves you. He loves you. And he loved you before you even knew there was a him. He's still taking care of folks.